Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Bernie Wagenblast, and I'm glad you could join us again on ITE Talks Transportation. This month, we're continuing our conversation about mobility as a service, and our guest is Valerie Leffler, the Executive Director of Phoenix Mobility Rising. Valerie, happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. We're excited to be here. I guess the best place to start, because a lot of folks may not be familiar with Phoenix, could you tell me a bit about it? And I should mention that Phoenix is not spelled like the city in Arizona, but it is spelled F-E-O-N-I-X. So tell me a bit about Phoenix, if you would, please. Sure. So Phoenix Mobility Rising is a nonprofit that was established about a year and a half ago um, that is really dedicated to serving vulnerable and underserved communities. So with that regard, supporting older adults, individuals with disabilities, individuals or families living in poverty, the folks in a community that traditionally, you know, kind of are, fall through the cracks or get left out um, of the equation just because they're the ones who aren't able to many times get to the community meetings when public hearings are held or uh, maybe just a variety of social factors um, prevent them in participating. Tell us a bit about your background. How did you get involved with this in the first place? This is a, an area that you've worked in for a number of years, isn't it? Starting out, I worked in the uh, University of Nebraska-Lincoln uh, Mid-America Transportation Center, and so uh, working in managing transportation research just saw a lot of different aspects of innovation occurring um, within the University Transportation Research Program. And then from there, kind of bloomed out and was on the tech startup scene for a while and really saw the growth of MOSS, in particular in rural communities. And then um, transitioning from that model to a nonprofit in March of 2018 and running a 501c3, again, launching MOSS, um, and not just in rural, but also urban, but again, focusing on these underserved communities. Um, we've been able to launch projects in six states. And so we're just really excited to see the technology evolve, the model evolve, the communities evolve as we really get into this innovative mobility as a service, mobility on demand space. So it's, it's just been really exciting to kind of start out at roundabouts and now we're, you know, launching mobility as a service. So really excited. Well, I guess you can say that you've been in on the, the ground floor of MOS development and mobility on demand. And that really has been something that's been emerging as a significant major market over the last few years. And you look at projections, and they're talking about that growing exponentially in the years ahead. How are MOS and MOD services creating both challenges for mobility, safety, and equity in the transportation space? And looking at the other side, how are they also presenting opportunities? With regard to challenges in this kind of mobility, safety, equity parameters, it really comes down to making sure that as we're designing the, the technology of tomorrow for our mobility, that we are thinking about our underserved communities, that we are thinking about individuals with disabilities, we are thinking about how older adults will operate and navigate our mobility ecosystem. And so, you know, uh, the challenges are, you know, as we think about 
the future of technology and we think about the future of these models, for example, one of the key learnings that we have is working with older adults. You can have mobility as a service, but if you put it on an app and you exclusively include that on an app, you're going to miss a large percentage of the population that still needs to navigate around a community or in a community if you're not allowing individuals to interact without having to have a smartphone, you know, you're leaving people behind. So there's that, that potential to expand the digital divide as we cascade towards these new features and these new functions. And then on top of it, from an equity perspective, you know, costs can grow, and that creates a huge challenge. I mean, we've had individuals in our communities where they'll call in and they'll say, I need a trip to the doctor, I'm going from here to here, and we'll say it's $3.42 which is cheaper than a bus pass, they still can't get to the doctor because they don't have $3.42. Or a single mom's trying to book a trip to work and she has to pay $1.25, she gives us three credit cards and none of them go through. And so that as people want to navigate a community, the cost to navigate that community has to be a factor and, and mechanisms need to be in place for individuals who are unbanked so on and so forth. And I think that TapCard has done some really innovative things, um, and we've kind of done some innovative things in our communities um, kind of ad hoc. But I think that is some of the key components that you see. And then I think it also brings to light in this mobility as a service, mobility on demand, what we're seeing in gaps in safety and security. When you are looking at these challenges as a city or as a council, you do notice. So for example, if we want to have somebody be a part of our platform, we talk to these transportation companies and we go online and we say, okay, this organization, you know, isn't registered in the state that they're operating in. Okay, well, they're not going to, you know, but yet they're driving around taking rides, <laughs> right? You know, there's no, no way to kind of hit those. Or, for example, we'll have people who are volunteer drivers or who are applying to be volunteer drivers who are actively Lyft and Uber drivers that don't pass the background check. And so when you bring all of these things together and all these mobility options and you look at them inclusively, you really do see some of the really fragmented safety components that are out there and so on and so forth. So I think it, it really does allow a community, allow community leaders, allow an integrator to really look at the community from that 50,000 foot view, but also that on the ground level, because you're seeing both things happen simultaneously, and those equations, those challenges that you see, you know, kind of really do start to make sense. You can start to see the jigsaw puzzle come together, which is really exciting. You mentioned those six states that you're operating in, and just again to give our listeners a, a sense of where that is, looking at the map, it's Wisconsin, Michigan, Nebraska, Missouri, Texas, and South Carolina. And I think the last count on the number of communities that you're actually operating in is something like 278. Tell me a bit about those communities. Is it a mix? Is it primarily rural? Is it a mix of rural and urban? What What is it? Yeah, it, it's definitely a mix. It does tend to lean towards the more rural communities because, for example, when we look at the coastal bend of Texas, we're serving 11 counties, and that does involve a lot of those communities. Um, but we're also serving Columbia, South Carolina uh, with the ARP Ride at 50 Plus program, and that covers an area of, you know, the MSA is around 800,000. So we do operate in this urban and rural community, but just given the nature of some of our partnerships and some of the challenges that we seek to solve, a large part of the communities that we do support are rural or even frontier. 
What are some of the innovative ways you've seen communities take that redesign into consideration to create more effective mobility services? One of the innovative things that we've seen across several of our communities is the way that they're approaching solving this third shift employment issue. Because we know this is a challenge whether you're in a really large urban area or you're working in a very small, low-density rural area. And so with Wisconsin and South Carolina, for example, we've had and worked alongside um, social service organizations or economic development organizations to create kind of a three-tiered approach to supporting individuals and also getting grant funds and industry partnerships together. And so, for example, like your first call is your volunteer. If the volunteer isn't available, they're going to a lift. If the lift isn't available because certain areas don't have lift or certain areas don't have um, reliable uh, lift given the time of day, for example, or Uber, then your, your third option is really looking at the taxi. And so that allows small businesses to grow on that third shift. It allows individuals to develop relationships with volunteer drivers. And it also stimulates, if there are TNC opportunities, you know, that as well. But it, it helps that individual that's getting to work have some redundancy in that way. And so both in Wisconsin and in South Carolina, we've seen some really exciting ways that communities have said, with mobility as a service, I've got multiple transportation options on the same platform. And I may have individuals, for example, that we're helping get to childcare to drop off their, their son or daughter at daycare and then get to work. Whereas, you know, we can help them simplify and shorten that on one leg of the trip with mobility as a service. If we'd had only one option, you know, then you're piecemealing things together, or if the volunteer's not available, I'm sorry. If there's not a taxi, you've got no other option. And so it's allowed us to kind of build a variety of options based upon the time of day, based upon the client's needs, versus just kind of, you know, having one option to go for. In each one of these communities where you're operating, you have partners. I'm curious, how important is forming strategic partnerships to implementing MOS and MOD services? And second part of that question, what are the strategies that you use to make sure that those partnerships are effective? I would say the strategic partnerships are really the lifeblood of the success of MOS or MOD. And when we go into a community, we form a group of stakeholders that we call this Mobility Leadership Circle. And this is this multidisciplinary group that's inclusive of the transit providers, private transportation providers, the veterans groups, the Centers for Independent Living, um, departments of education, universities, oncology centers, social workers at the um, dialysis center. And we bring all those folks together because we, we're looking at the whole person, right? And in, in a community, you don't just live to go to the doctor, right? You, you're, you're living your life. You're going to work. You're getting your groceries. You're going to the doctor with your kids as well as yourself, you know, all these things. And so that group of strategic partners is coming together to support and lift up their community's mobility ecosystem. And having everybody you know, around the table is really invigorating, it's exciting, and it's really that gas in the tank that ensures that you're transforming the community from the inside out versus the outside in. Because those champions um, that believe in mobility as a service um, are just incredible. And one of our communities, one of the partners, when he was looking at the Ride at 50 Plus platform and the mobility as a service ecosystem, he said, this is the next internet of transportation. You know, it's just <laughs> really, really fun. And, you know, he's just so excited. And this is a gentleman who'd 
worked 40 years and was a senior administrator at a logistics company, um, but was just really exciting about how this could support the work that he was doing with the United Way. And so the ability to bring those partners in, to get them excited, to get them to understand the potential is just absolutely essential. I don't think Moss or Mod goes anywhere in a community if those partnerships are not formed or it falls flat, without a doubt. The strategies that we use for ensuring they're effective is meeting regularly and having those face-to-face -face meetings when possible. So, you know, one of the key components is, you know, these groups that we put together meet on a regular basis, whether that be monthly, biweekly, quarterly. Um, we even have one group in, in Wisconsin that meets weekly because they are so committed to making success happen for their community members. What happens so many times is these stakeholder groups get put together and they kind of have this rolling agenda, but their voice isn't heard, their concerns aren't addressed, and you know, three months later go by and then you meet again, you don't even remember what you talked about, half the people have changed positions or you know, have gotten other duties as assigned, and it might be six months before you hear what's going on with the project. To move at the pace that we have at Phoenix and to support the communities with the, the thematic interests that we have, it does require those regular communications, but also those transparent conversations that happen around those conference tables and in some cases on those conference calls. It's just, you know, we're open, we're honest, we talk about the hard stuff. Uh, we don't sugarcoat things, we're transparent, and it's messy. You deal with a lot of really challenging things. People that we're supporting many times have really chaotic environments and as well as, you know, just the nature of technology in these kind of environments is not easy. And so that community group um, in those strategic partnerships is just such an essential part of not only effectiveness, but also adaptation and continuity for seeing the service sustained. I'm curious with these partnerships, how do they come about? Do they seek you out? Do you seek them out? Or is it a combination of the two? It's a combination of the two. So traditionally when we work with a community, um, we start out, depending on the model, either we say, okay, here's the, you know, these are the pieces of the puzzle. You need somebody from veterans, somebody from education, somebody from transit, private transit, centers for independent living, school system, you know, da 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 da. And we say, okay, you find them, or in some contracts, we find them. <laughs> And we say, hey, da, 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 this is who we are, this is who we're helping, will you come join us? And 99 times out of 100, or maybe I would say 97 times out of 100, when you say, we want to help you solve this challenge, we don't get a no. Because we're going in there saying, we want to learn from you, we are not the experts. And a lot of these community members that we're going to many times haven't been invited to these conversations or if they have been invited, it's been two years, and it's not around let's put together some goals and solve this for my patients, my students, my community members that are unable to get to jobs. And when you say let's work together to find a solution to your problem versus, hey, I've got some really cool technology I want you to implement, that's a different conversation. And so you know, I think that's the success that we have both in saying here's who we want to help come with us or can we help you versus I've got an app, hey, you know, let's work. Can you use this technology? With your operations ongoing in, in six different states and as we mentioned, hundreds of communities, 
I would imagine almost every one of those communities has different policy uh, and regulatory challenges that go along with them. What are some of those challenges that you've encountered in implementing MOS and MOD? And how have you addressed some of those challenges? Well, I think in the United States, there's not really a layer of framework specifically addressing mobility as a service as yet. Um, there's a lot of pilots that have some innovative frameworks that, you know, to in order to implement, there's FTA regulations that you need to make sure you're following. But in terms of having a MOS regulatory framework, we're fortunate that we don't have to quote unquote navigate that because right now, it's when we deploy MOS, when we work with small businesses or uh, public transit agencies, things like that, we're just kind of operating under normal business rules, right? You provide a ride for us, invoice, and we'll pay you at the end of the month or prepay or you know whatever the arrangement is. So that's pretty simple. Um, with the mobility on demand, depending on how you look on it, you know, as Uber and Lyft are seeing right now with the, is it an employee, is it a volunteer, um, is it a, I'm a technology firm, you know, there's a variety of things happening in some of these spaces in how the employment relationship or the engagement relationship is transforming. And so I think there's just an interesting amount of discussion that goes along with how to classify those quote unquote, unquote drivers or not drivers slash volunteers <laughs> <laughs> with regard to workman's comp and benefits and those kind of things. And then when you look at it from the liability in the vehicle, um, this is one of the key things that we saw at Liberty, but also that we see now at Phoenix, and we're working in these rural communities, and they say, well, I'd like to sign up for Uber or Lyft um, and be a, a TNC driver. And in those rural communities, there's actually insurance policies that are not available for them to take advantage of that opportunity. Um, so I think when it comes to the liability side for individuals who want to be drivers, in some of these communities that are starting to deploy MOS in these non-traditional areas, the insurance regulations are really fragmented and not available. And so that's been, I think, two of the most interesting aspects is kind of um, the regulatory challenges and understanding that driver aspect of you know, how that relationship goes, but also that liability in the vehicle for these volunteers or independent contractors that are operating communities and how do they insure themselves. As I look at some of the news about transportation and mobility in particular, data plays a big role in MOS and MOD services. But when you start talking about data, you also start talking about privacy and how do you protect privacy when you're sharing data. So how do you take these applications and providers and protect privacy while you're sharing data with cities that's helpful in making transportation planning and engineering decisions? I think the biggest component is that everybody understands from day one what they're getting and what's available. Because I think as some of these relationships have evolved and as some of these complex partnerships become more firm and everybody's working and, and trying to say, yeah, there's this data, now how do we best take advantage of it? It's definitely understanding how that data works in the database and, and what's available to them. So for example, in some communities, they just want the ride data. They just want to know how many trips have we had, how many miles have we gone, how many users do we have, and that's enough because their goal is to move individuals from point A to point B. And until we reach a situation where we have unmet needs, for example, we don't have volunteers in that zip code or we don't have a transportation provider at all in that zip code or a transit agency can't cross the county line to get to that zip code or whatever, you know, those are things that we track 
as needed, but they don't involve quote unquote sharing any personal data. It's just we have a point from trip point A to trip point B that was not served because there was no provider available. But when you're looking at, for example, we have a number of partnerships with healthcare agencies, federally qualified health centers, we've got hospitals, oncology centers, dialysis clinics. We use the QRIDE platform because it is HIPAA compliant and it's been around for a number of years in deploying our mobility as a service ecosystem. And so, you know, ensuring that data security for those administrators, for those um, hospitals, for those transit agencies, so on and so forth, is paramount. And making sure that you've got good data security, good data security practices with those partners up front is essential. And I think that is a critical part of the conversation, especially when working with um, tech startups and things like that, because they're they're new in this space, right? And so ensuring that everybody knows these are the type of data security policies that are required is really helping, but also saying, what data can you give me that's going to make me do a better job in, in supporting the community and in filling the gaps in the mobility ecosystem? Oh, we've been talking this month on ITE Talks Transportation with Valerie Leffler. She is the Executive Director of Phoenix Mobility Rising. We've been talking about MOS and mobility on demand. Valerie, thanks so much for being our guest on ITE Talks Transportation. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Bernie.